0: and listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, owner of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Today is a really, really special day. It is the 25th anniversary of H.R. 5050, the law that gave women access to credit in their own name. So it's 25 years old today. On October the 25th, 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed H.R. 5050 into law. It was long overdue. I mean, you stop and you think about 25 years ago, women still couldn't get credit in their own name, but that's the way the situation was. And so this legislation not only allowed women business owners the right to get credit in their own name without a male co-signer, a brother. In one instance, we're going to hear about how a son, a young son, had to sign on behalf of his mother. But it also established the National Women's Business Council, which is a direct link to the President and Congress on legislative issues. It also created the Women's Business Centers, and it mandated that women-owned businesses be counted in the census. And we're going to be finding out why that's important, too. So joining us today to talk with us about this Landmark legislation are Virginia Littlejohn, Dr. Terry Neese, and Julie Weeks, some of the women business leaders who crusaded for that legislation, who helped to implement the provisions once it became law, and who continue today to advocate on behalf of women-owned businesses around the world. So, very important day, and and I want to start now with Virginia Littlejohn, who I know she's probably uh, not going to accept this title, but was one of, let's say one of, the chief architects of HR 5050. Welcome to the show today, Virginia. When I tell people that women won the right to access credit in their own name as little as 25 years ago, they look at me in complete disbelief, yet you and women like you fought for that right over two decades ago. Describe the climate for women business owners prior to that law.
1: Well, the, the issue of credit had originally come up earlier in terms of non-business credit, but uh, business credit was not written in in the same way, and many states had state laws at that point that a woman could not sign for a business loan in her own name. She had to have a male um, relative typically sign for her, that usually being a husband or father. But one of the um, egregious things that we discovered was that in one case, one woman entrepreneur had to have her 17-year-old son co-signed for her because he was of the right gender. She was divorced, and that was the only male she could access. So that actually happened, and it really was quite, quite shocking. No one uh, from today can believe that that was the situation as recently as 25 years ago.
0: Virginia, you're often referred to as the chief architect of House Resolution 5050. Why did you push for that law? And what did it take to get it passed?
1: Well, let me say I am not the only person who was an architect. There were a group of, of about five of us who were working on the strategy for it, and three of us uh, particularly worked on it. So I was one of the three. Um, Julian Rudd, who was the Navajo National President, at that time, uh, originally teed it up with the chair of the House Small Business Committee, Congressman John LeFevre, and then Hope Eastman was our public policy vice president for the National Association of Women Business Owners. Then she was also quite engaged, as were two other NABO members, Laura Henderson and Susan Hager, um, and. Charlotte Taylor was another person who had been quite interested in the policy situation. Um, We had a strategic slumber party where we basically sat up all night strategizing what the key issues were that women business owners faced, and we identified five different issues, those being the access to capital issue, which was hugely important, the whole issue of capacity building so women-owned businesses could grow, access to federal procurement, um, having a seat at the public policy table, and then the final piece was there were terribly uh, inaccurate Um, business census figures about the number of women-owned businesses. And the government thought because they only counted uh, or they did not count corporations at all, they thought that women-owned businesses were vastly smaller than they in fact were. A publication that the Small Business Administration had called the State of Small Business said that women-owned businesses generated only about $10,000 a year in income, that they specialized in craft businesses, pretty much all home-based, and they specifically mentioned macrame and candle making. And we knew, <laughs> yes, exactly, we knew from our own Navo board of directors and our members in our chapters around the country, that that was absolutely not the case. So those were the five issues that we addressed in the hearing. We got witnesses who were able to all of those five issues. And we ultimately, in working with the House Small Business Committee on the legislation, decided that um, we should only, in the legislation, Push for four of those issues because if we included federal procurement and access to federal contracts, we were sure that we would never be able to get the legislation through in a short window of time. And what we were trying for was to get the legislation through in 1988, which was a presidential election year when it was easier potentially to move an issue like that. So we dropped the, the procurement from the final legislation, though we testified extensively on that in the um, House Resolution 50-50 hearings, HR 5050), as we called the legislation. You know, that
0: provision about being counted in the census is one of those provisions that often gets lost in this whole discussion. Why is it so critically important that we know the actual count?
1: Well, absolutely critical because we were absolutely dismissed. No one thought that there was any need to have Capacity building for women-owned businesses, no one thought we needed loans. If they thought we did need loans, they thought we only needed so-called mini-loans because if you think that all women business owners in the country have businesses with sales of 10000 a year, you're not going to think those other issues are important. You're not going to think they're relevant for government contracts. You're not going to think that they need angel investment uh, or significant bank loans. And at one point before we actually did the HR 5050 hearings, I had organized a public affairs day for NAWBO. And we had about 30 some of our members who went up to the Senate Small Business Committee. And when one of the committee staffers, talked about the SBA the small business administration's state of small business publication saying that we had sales of 10,000 a year and that we specialized in macrame and candle making i said excuse me would you mind if i asked our members in the audience a question and they said well yes go ahead and I asked them how many sales had sales of more than $100,000 a year, more than $250,000, more than $500,000, more than a million. And as, you know, these hands were going up in the room, there was absolute slack-jawed stupefaction on the part of the people from the Senate Small Business Committee who were in the room, they were absolutely stupefied at this information. And so that's why the data and statistics are so important, because we were never taken seriously until then. And after we were able to get the, the census data we were able to really make a very robust economic case for why all of these initiatives were important and in the national economic interest.
0: There are some young women business owners that I talked to, especially as I traveled around the country to the different chapters when I was the NABO National Chair, and I always herald this, the HR 5050 is one of the grand accomplishments of NABO, but what I would hear from a lot of them was, yeah, it was a watershed it was a milestone but enough of that why can't we move past it and focus on other things so as i hear that why is it important
1: to celebrate
0: the passage of hr 5050 and not just on its milestones but to
1: continue
0: to celebrate it all the time
1: well i think it's an important landmark in women entrepreneurial history but it's absolutely not the end of the uh, journey Um, I've been working intensely with a number of thought leaders in the United States recently on something that we're calling Fast Forward, which we're also going to be launching on the 25th anniversary of HR 5050, the Women's Business Ownership Act. And that is Fast Forward, which is basically focused on innovation, and competitiveness through women's entrepreneurship. And we're looking at the next 25 years, what we want to be celebrating in 2038, on the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Women's Business Ownership Act of 1988.
0: Virginia, you spent your whole life advocating on behalf of women business owners, and you just mentioned your participation in Fast Forward. What other initiatives are you involved in? And
1: tell us what you're doing now. Well, I'm doing a lot of work with sharing best practices at the global level. Um, The U.S. has so many good practices and best practices, initiatives relating to angel investment for women-owned business, venture capital forums for women-owned business, um, just the market initiatives that we've been doing in the U.S., for women-owned businesses for about 15 years. So I was very involved with um, incubating We Connect International, which does internationally what happens in the U.S. through the Women's Business Enterprise National Council, facilitating access to markets for women-owned businesses. I also do a lot of work with the U.N., um, International Trade Center. It's a joint agency of the International Trade Center and the World Trade Organization in Geneva, getting women in developing countries into the global supply chain. And also we're doing roadmaps to 2020 to accelerate the the advancement of women's entrepreneurship in other countries and to share good practice and best practices
0: Virginia, you've devoted your whole life to women business owners. It's very clear that they're a passion, and you have made literally a world of difference for women business owners, all of the work that we do, and I just want to thank you personally for that and uh, to all of the women who have helped you as well.
1: You're very welcome. It's my great pleasure.
0: Okay, we're here this morning on the 25th anniversary of the passage of HR5050 which is the legislation that President Reagan signed on October the 25th, 1988. Allowing women access to credit in their own name. And we're talking with some of the women who were instrumental in its passage, as well as current women business leaders who continue to advocate on behalf of women. And one of them is my good friend, Julie Weeks, who is the founder of Women Able. Julie was also the executive director of the National Women's Business Council from two thousand and two to two thousand and five. Thanks for spending some time with us today, Julie.
2: Great to talk to you again, Kelly. Okay,
0: now some people don't realize that HR 5050 contained numerous provisions besides establishing credit for women in their own name, and one of those provisions was the establishment of the National Women's Business Council. So, as the former executive director of that organization, can you tell us why the torchbearers of HR 5050 like Virginia Littlejohn and Susan Hager and others? thought it was important to establish a body like the NWBC.
2: Yes, the National Women's Business Council uh, establishes a seat at the table for women business owners and their advocates in federal policymaking circles. That's what it did. It allowed access to the federal policymakers in an official way. The National Women's Business Council is a bipartisan council that has representation from individual women business owners and women's business associations, And they have to provide an annual report to Congress, to the President of the United States, and to the Small Business Administration every year with... What are the challenges that women business owners are facing, and what public policy recommendations does the women's business community have? So it's it's done a a very good job of making sure that the voices of women's business advocates are heard in Washington, D.C.
0: Okay, and how do they go about doing that? Obviously, they are a body that's tied very closely to Congress, to the President, as you pointed out, but how do they go ab- about gathering their recommendations? Do actual women business owners sit on the the board? How how does that all work?
2: Yes, there are uh, eight individual women business owner representatives. Half are from the president's party, and half are not from the president's party. Typically, meaning they're they're independents as opposed to strong partisans mm-hmm. in the opposite mm-hmm. field. And then there are representatives of four women's business associations which has changed over time although nabo the national association of women business owners has had a seat on the council since its inception and one of those seats is also reserved uh, in the legislation for representatives of women's business centers you know that was one of the other pillars of uh, hr 5050 was the establishment of, of the Women's Business Center program. So, But how they gather and share those recommendations is a combination of meetings of all of these council members who that, themselves have ties to lots of women's business organizations in their communities. They'll have public meetings and roundtables in various parts of the country, and they also conduct research um, and analyze issues so that they can you know make some fact-based recommendations to congress uh, and to the administration. Okay,
0: as a result of this over the last 25 years of these women leaders meeting regularly, making these policy recommendations, what's been what have been some of the outcomes of that that we might as, as women business leaders going about our daily business might not even recognize or realize has occurred?
2: Well, I think one of the key uh, issues that that the council has focused on over the years. This is you know starting in the 90s. Um, one of the uh, aspects of the Women's Business Ownership Act that was not able to be introduced at the time because if it had been, it would have uh, sunk the entire legislation. Was access to federal procurement yes. markets for women-owned businesses, and the council and others in the women's business community were were very vocal after the establishment of the National Women's Business Council to get a Women-Owned Small Business Procurement Program established. In the mid-1990s, I think it was 1994, there was the 5% procurement goal established, which was the first Mm -hmm. step to getting more access to federal procurement markets. And only just in the last year or so is there now a Women-Owned Small Business Procurement Program and the ability of agencies to reserve procurements and spendings for women-owned small businesses bidding only. And so that's a big one. Um, access to capital is another big one. I mean, you, you mentioned before about the um, extending the Equal Credit Opportunity Act from 1974 to business credit, which is what the Women's Business Ownership Act did. But since then, there's also um, working with the Small Business Administration and their SBIC program, Small Business Investment Corporation, to get more equity capital, in the hands of women-owned businesses. The National Women's Business Council also incubated uh, what became Springboard Enterprises, which is a non-government organization that's focused on getting women business owners the connections and the, the lexicon that they need to go after venture capital. You know, So that's another one. I think also the, the council has been very active in the past. When I was there, certainly um, for the Women's Business Center program, which has been – on the chopping block almost every year since its establishment, yeah. so there's you know there's a lot of proactive advocacy in you know in capital in education and technical assistance in access to capital, all of those kinds of issues, as well as you know being a role model for other countries in in public policy circles that the council's been you know pointed to as a as a good practice, and other uh, countries have established um you know similar kinds of advisory boards so that the women's business community can, you know, be um, advisors to other national governments.
0: Very true. Now, Julie, your research on women business owners is is widely known, not just throughout the United States but throughout the world, actually. And from where you stand, what gaps and challenges still exist for WBOs today?
2: There certainly are gaps and challenges from a legislative and legal point of view in a lot of countries. Um, a lot of women cannot get capital in their own names in other countries you know and you know it's surprising to a lot of people that even in the united states it wasn't until after this bill passed in 1988 that women business owners in the u.s could so that's still Why, a challenge very recently elsewhere yeah that's certainly the, the case but i think there's also just more globally i think there's a, a a realization that there's been a lot of activity and a lot of focus on getting more women into business and getting started but there's not as much support, or um, whether it's legislative or even peer support, for growth. And I think that's kind of the next um, area of focus is try to get women-owned businesses to, as as you say, think bigger. So, you know, that's that I think is the next challenge for the next phase of women's enterprise development is is focusing on growth. And also showing that that there's more than one way to grow a business. That you don't have to do it the, you know, straight linear testosterone charged way. That there, there are more and more um, examples of how women are growing businesses, you know, very solidly, but but with uh, better balance and better um, environmental responsibility and, and better uh, balance for their employees too.
0: Absolutely. So if you could look out. Another 25 years to the 50th anniversary of HR 5015. <laughs> what can you tell us from research trends, from your personal experience working with women business owners, about where you think women business owners might be? And I'm talking about, for example, you know, in what industries might they be taking the lead? What kind of economic impact do you think they might be uh, having? How will they be shaping policy, for example?
2: Well, if I were to dream and have my dreams come true, <laughs> then um, between now and 25 years from now, we would have had a female president, at least one. And when you have um, women in political leadership at high levels, uh, then you have a tremendous positive role model for women's leadership in a whole lot of other areas, too. So, you know, with with at least one female president between now and 50 years from now, perhaps more than one. Um, we would probably have more cabinet secretaries being female, um, more members of Congress being female. They would then, uh, you know, be more amenable to, uh, you know, not zeroing out the budget of things like the Women's Business Center program. Uh, I think we'd be putting women business owners in, in better stead because there would just be more positive energy, and I think there'd be more and more research that would really show that having a much more diverse population of businesses, um, both male and female and ethnically diverse, is going to be leading to higher gross national product, um, better household incomes, and everybody will just be Healthier and happier.
0: We often hear. I know that there have been studies done. You and I served on the Navo board together uh, not too long ago, in about within about the last uh, four or five years, and we we saw mm-hmm. studies come through. And I know that you've been very instrumental, mental in some of these studies yourself about how women are actually more collaborative when it comes to problem solving, when it comes to working together, and coming to some kind of a compromise in order to keep things moving forward and it hasn't Mm -hmm. gotten a lot of press in the last week but there was a group of women politicians actually who were at the very core of getting this this most recent budget and debt ceiling impasse uh pushed through so so where what do you think that the that collaborative spirit where do you think that could lead us
2: well I, I would hope it would lead us to uh you know less confrontation on capitol hill for one thing um a more collaborative um style in business certainly leads to more you know win win business partnerships. It doesn't have to be you know if if I win you lose um and, and i think the the way women approach leadership in whatever realm they're in you know whether it be business or in civil society or in politics i I think it's it's always looking for the win-win as opposed to the zero-sum game so i think with um, more women in business leadership more women in political leadership more women leading in civil society then we're we're going to be looking for solutions that are not um you know putting us ahead of somebody else and and you know rubbing other people's noses in, haha! I, you know, I won this battle. Um, I, I think a more collaborative decision-making style and, and leadership uh, mode will just make all things better, not just in business and politics, but in life mm-hmm. in general.
0: In the research studies that you have been a part of, what are some of the other characteristics of women business owners? W- women in general, it carries over into their business uh, affairs, obviously. That will help women... Be successful over the next several
2: decades. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that we've seen is that as women grow their businesses, they are um, more understanding of the, the the needs of their employees in terms of uh, flexible work schedules, um, putting in uh, retirement benefits or other benefits earlier on. That's that's one thing that's that's really helped. And and again, this more collaborative. Um, decision making uh, this is not research that I've done but research that I've seen in like in corporate realms and in other in other large businesses if you have a more diverse body making decisions whether it's an employee work group or a board you know of a larger business um, decisions get made that lead to greater profitability yes. so I think there's there's been much more um, roi information of the you know return on investment of having diversity so I think you know, what we need to see, I think, is a little more um, quantitative information on on the return on investment of more women owning businesses. But it's where we have started to see that uh, is in um, happy, more productive employees, for one thing, because of you know the the, the mix of benefits that we women employers uh, provide to our employees. Mm-hmm. So I think as time goes on, we'll be seeing more quantitative um, results of of what. Uh, women's entrepreneurial leadership can bring to employees and to society.
0: Okay, a closing question here for you. When Virginia Littlejohn, when Susan Hager, when all, all of the, the, the mothers, the, as, as they call themselves, of HR 5050 were, were mm-hmm. trying to get all of this legislation passed, they took – Capitol Hill by storm. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, to hear them tell it, sometimes I don't think the legislators knew what hit them. Do you think that, I don't want to say dumbed down, but do you think that in our current environment where women do have a stronger voice, do you think that we've been numbed down to a certain extent that because it was so new, it was so fresh, that people stopped and they did pay attention, and that now Maybe the message isn't as clear or the message uh, some people don't think the message is as necessary. Do you think because of that first of all if you agree with it, but do you do you think it might actually be harder in some respects now? I mean what what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think because it was so new and, and taking some place by storm is easier when you're invisible to yes. begin with. I think and that's what the, the founding mothers what made them so angry, I think, and, and allowed them to kind of uh, organize and take Capitol Hill by storm, is, is because women entrepreneurs were invisible. Now we're in, we're visible, but not fully understood. And some of the challenges that women business owners face, to a different or greater degree um, than men business owners, is it's more complex. So it can't be boiled down to something simple um and i think that uh you know messaging advocacy all all of those um you know the the mechanics of politics and of advocacy is different now and much more diffuse and complicated so um i think it's probably no longer um possible to to launch that kind of a campaign um but i do think um it's it's no less important to continue to be Visible and vocal advocates, because I mean, as as we've seen over the past 25 years, there have been attempts at at many points along the way for people trying to take away the gains that that right. women entrepreneurs have have gained since HR 5050's passage. So if you if you get complacent um, or if you let off the pressure, then then the gains that you have made could go away. So it's, it's very important to continue to be. Strong advocate.
0: yes yes, it is. And Julie, as I said, you do an enormous amount of research. A lot of it is published in the national presses. You work with uh, open quite a bit, and your mm-hmm. the results of your surveys appear in all the major business media. But for people who may not know about your work, where can they go and read more reports on women business owners, their impact, policy, and all of the different areas that you cover?
2: Well, thanks for asking, Kelly. Um I think it, the best way, place to go is on our website, womenable.com, W-O-M-E-N-A-B-L-E. Um most of the studies that have been, uh, that are out in the public domain uh, are there for free to be downloaded. Um also a tremendous amount of links to other people's reports because it's important to, uh, to share all of the good research that's out there, not just what what we've done, but, um, but quite a bit of research, you know, not only in the U.S., but elsewhere, and very important to keep track of. So, WomenAble.com is the place to go.
0: Julie, thank you so much for your time today, for your insights, and for all of the work you do on behalf of women business owners.
2: You're very welcome and great to talk to you again.
0: We also have with us today Dr. Terry Neese, who is the founder and CEO of the Institute for Economic Empowerment of Women. She leads the organization via two programs, domestic and international training for women business owners in the area of public policy and entrepreneurial education. Terry has... Essentially devoted her adult life to empowering women. The list of what she has been involved with is far too long to go into here, but I will have her give you a website where you can go and get more information about her background and about the program she's involved with at the end of the interview here. So, Terry, you were the Nabo president. Right after H.R. 5050 was passed uh, in 1988, what was it like then? What did the organization, what did you do as the president to keep the momentum going, to get the legislation implemented? Talk to us about that period right after.
1: Well, a couple of things quickly, Kelly. Um, I think the 1986 White House Conference on Small Business, catapulted NABO to new heights in the public policy arena. And I think we have a tendency to, to kind of forget that 1986 White House Conference on Small Business because NABO really got on the map during that White House Conference as women entrepreneurs were growing exponentially across the country and then we really became a major force at the White House Conference in 86. Yes, and I'm- After we After we passed the legislation in 88, and in passing the legislation, all of these women who were delegates to the 1986 White House Conference on Small Business have really received a lot of education on how to push legislation in Congress. And so that helped us with with the 88 passage of the legislation. As we began to implement it, and I was president-elect in 1989 of NABO and then president in 1990, um, I worked with women all across the country to start um, assisting with the development of the women's business centers. These women business centers were critical to the explosion of women entrepreneurship around the country. So NABO was very involved with the law that launched a demonstration project for entrepreneurial education and counseling, focused on senior clients. Carrie, applying. if I
0: could stop you for just a minute there, for some of the people who may be listening and don't understand what the women business centers are, could you give us just a short little description of what their purpose is and how they do enhance entrepreneurial? Uh, they are a great entrepreneurial resource for women business owners.
1: Sure. You, you know, initially they were pilot programs in 1989, and, and now there's over 100 women's business centers all around the country. So in, in almost every major city there's a women's business center. They provide technical assistance to women entrepreneurs. They provide education. They provide counseling and coaching, uh, group and peer-to-peer mentoring Um if, if you don't have a business plan for your company, this is where you can go to the, to the women's business centers to get help to put a business plan together. If, if you're needing help in terms of a marketing plan for your business, um, the women's business centers is a place for you to go. Um, there's there's also peer-to-peer mentoring. But just because there's so many women entrepreneurs that are connected To those women's business centers. They are a major force in the cities to help women entrepreneurs grow and sustain, more importantly, sustain. Their businesses in those communities.
0: Okay, so when you were president of NABO, that was one of the things that you were integrally involved with in carrying out HR 5050 was working. At that time, they were still a pilot program, but you were on the ground trying to assist in getting them established and getting them up and going.
1: Yeah, exactly. And because NABO, um, really, NABO started developing chapters around the country in the 80s, but had not really developed a a lot of the chapters until the late 80s and 90s. So by that time, we were trying to develop chapters, but then also putting these women's business centers where the NABO chapters were, were, were critical in NABO growing, and then also the women's business centers becoming the focal point for where women entrepreneurs could go to develop um, their business plans, their marketing plans, and grow and sustain their business. So it was, it, it was a beautiful blend and a great partnership between the women's business centers. Absolutely. And Nava.
0: So you were you were on the ground getting these established. You were continuing your work, training women on policy and how to talk to legislature legislators and uh, working to get. Uh, I, I know that the next step—it wasn't included in the original bill—but you ha- still had uh, procurement ahead of you.
1: Yes. Yeah, and, and procurement has been a big issue for many, many years. You know, we've had a five percent goal um, for women entrepreneurs to obtain. Government, federal government contracting of over $300 billion that are spent every year from by by the government through to our private sector. And you know, we're still in the below 4%. And women entrepreneurs are now making up almost half of, of businesses across the country, and we're at a paltry level in terms of federal government contracting. So we still have a lot of work to do in that arena. And it's so important for women to be involved in public policy. Um, I I started the Institute for Economic Empowerment of Women about eight years ago, primarily to teach women entrepreneurs in the United States how important it is to be involved in public policy because I believe if you run a business, and you're not involved in politics, then politics is going to run your business. That's
0: absolutely true, and there's so many women that I talk to who their eyes glaze over whenever you talk about politics or when you talk about policy, and first, you know, they're so busy running their businesses, but as you say, if you do not have a seat at the table, if you are not participating in it, then it is is running your business for you, and some people don't realize it's simple local things even like your ability to put a sign on your building or out in the, I mean, it's yes. very, very practical things like that too. It's not all about getting politicians elected all the time. No,
1: that's true. No, that, that's true. And, and at some point in your career, you are going to need help from some elected official, whether it's a county official or a state official or a federal official. And when you need that help, is not the time to get to know your elected official. You need to know them before you need Right. Them it's help. sort of like when you need
0: help from the bank. You want to have that relationship before you can't meet your payroll because by then it's too right. late. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's right. Those relationships are critical. So
0: you mentioned the Institute for Economic Empowerment of Women. You started that about eight years ago. One of the facets of that organization absolutely fascinates me. It's called Peace Through Business. And would you talk with us a little bit about that part of the program?
1: Yes, we are um, – Peace Through Business um, is working in Afghanistan and Rwanda, and we've worked in both countries for almost eight years now. We have graduated a little over 400 women um, in both countries. Uh, We teach in-country for 10 weeks. We have staff on the ground in both countries. Our partner um, in this venture is Northwood, all one word, Northwood University. They have campuses in three locations in the United States, and they're affiliated with 181 countries, um, uh, other mm-hmm. universities. So we we teach in country around 30 to 35 women every year, and then we bring the top 15 women to the United States in July. They're here the entire month of July. Uh, going through a deep leadership development course at Northwood University for 10 days. Then we match the women with an American woman entrepreneur who owns their same industry back Mm -hmm. home. And so she lives with the American woman entrepreneur for eight days. And then we reconvene in Dallas, Texas, for an International Women's Economic Summit. Um, Great speakers. The ambassador from Rwanda comes, the ambassador from Afghanistan in attendance as well. And um, they graduate, and they graduate with the understanding that it's now time for them to go home and pay forward the knowledge to other women and their children, frankly, um, back home in their country. Right, and I, I think
0: we have to put this in perspective for our American listeners here today, some of the we we're, we're used to being able to go to a women 's business center or to go and ask for assistance. Entrepreneurship is looked upon fondly here in the united states it's something that is encouraged, but in the countries where you're working, many times these women are doing this at risk to themselves,
1: so yes. so yes. go ahead I, but, but these are very brave courageous women. Now Rwanda is is very um, very much a free market society, and um, it, it's safe there. Um, and their their president, in fact, has appointed three of our peace through business graduates to the Rwanda Parliament. And we're so proud of that. Um, in Afghanistan, obviously, um, they leave their homes of a morning, and they don't know whether they'll return right. or not. They, they don't know whether they're going to encounter a bomb or what's going to happen. But they are very determined to build um, the marketplace and economic development efforts in that country. And in fact, our students um, over the last two to three years are creating around 22 jobs per company. In, in the country of Afghanistan, 28 per company in the country of Rwanda. That's
0: astounding. So
1: they're, they're doing amazing work. And, Kelly, one last statistics. Eighty percent of all of our graduates are still in business at the end of seven years. That's an astonishing Yes, it number. is.
0: In fact, it beats some of the stats here in the U.S.
1: <laughs> so, yes, so 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 to wrap up here,
0: You have spent so much of your your adult life here in the U.S. working on behalf of American women business owners. What propelled you to take this message outside of U.S. borders? Why is that so critically important and why does that complete the cycle, so to speak?
1: Well, I think that it's hard to be at war with your friends and your partners. And um, women... Are natural peacekeepers. And um, we believe that when you educate a woman, you educate her family and you educate her family. And, And you educate her family and you educate her community. And so what's important to us is that democracies don't war against each other. And we are step by step developing. Firm democracies in both the countries of Afghanistan and Rwanda. I would not be on this path had I not received a call from the State Department to assist women in Afghanistan and also from the Education Department. Um, so that's what put me on the path. But once I was on the path and visited the country of Afghanistan and Rwanda, I was determined to help these women. I felt this was my legacy after working with women in the United States for so many years. Um, This was my next step um, to assist the world, and and that sounds very esoteric, uh, but to assist the world in our no, effort. it
0: does not sound esoteric. I mean, some of, the, some of the things that you're talking about are the same things that Muhammad Yunus, the Grameen Bank, there's people the world over who realize that whenever you can give people hope, whenever you can give people uh, a, a future, and as you said, when you're doing business together and you're working together, you're much less likely to be at war with one another. Uh, there's no telling what kind of positive things can happen. So thank you so much for your work. Terry, for all that you've done on behalf of women business owners the world over and keep up that good fight.
1: Well, thank you. And and honestly, um, had I not been involved in NABO and been the national president of NABO, I'm not sure I'd be on this path. So um, just kudos to to NABO and a a wonderful 25th anniversary to um, the Women's Business Ownership Act of 1988. Absolutely.
0: Thank you, Terry. And I want to thank all of our guests today. Terry, Virginia Littlejohn and Julie Weeks, and for all of the work that they do on behalf of women business owners. If you want to learn more about how to grow your business, you can go to our website at IThinkBigger.com. You can like us on Facebook, Thinking Bigger Business Media, and you can also follow us on Twitter at IThinkBigger. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.